I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Genocide Studies scholar A. Dirk Moses about his provocative book, The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security, and the Language of Transgression, which argues that the way we conceptualize genocide structures the very way we think about what constitutes acts that shock the conscience of mankind. That in itself may not sound too provocative. However, Moses furthermore makes the case that this in turn could be causing us to have blind spots around other heinous acts that should also shock the conscience of mankind. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. But first, a word from our sponsors. First, Joseph Matheny on his new audio drama, Zen, the Zen of the Other. And then, musician Rick Berlin, who wants you to pick up his new book, The Big Balloon, A Love Story. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a forest spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen, the Zen of the other, the audio play. 
Available now on digital.panicmachine.com. Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. A note for listeners that this conversation contains a few moments where literally just for a syllable, the sound glitches up when Dirk Moses is speaking. That being said, this is eminently listenable in my opinion. And like I said, it's only, you know, every once in a while, you'll hear a little sort of maybe glitchy sound for a single syllable of Dirk's speaking. And with that in mind, my conversation with Dirk Moses. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been meaning to have on for some time now, A. Dirk Moses, uh, Frank Porter Graham Distinguished Professor of Global Human Rights History and author of the fascinating book, The Problems of Genocide, and also the editor of the Journal of Genocide Research. How are you doing today? Well, thanks. Great to be with you today. Before we get into the book, The Problems of Genocide, uh, maybe you could tell my listeners uh, a little bit about your background, because uh, genocide studies, uh, it's a heavy topic, and my listeners will probably be interested to know how you got involved in it. Sure, happy to. Uh, so as you can tell from my accent, I'm Australian, but I grew up in a household where my father was a historian, is an historian still of uh, Germany, and my my mother's German. So uh, there was, a, you know, intense consciousness of of German history in the household, in in suburban Brisbane. And uh, at the same time, you know, as I grew into adolescence, one became increasingly conscious of the the issue of genocide in Australia, the, the of Indigenous Australians, uh, although that. You know, I hadn't quite made the connection until in my uh, in my 20s. So, you know, I went to the US to do my graduate work and California. Uh, I did a, a dissertation, then a book on post-war West German memories and debates about Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And then when I finished that in uh, the year 2000, uh, you know, around that time, I became interested in the question of, well, what about Australia? What about our debates about our past? And to what extent can the genocide concept be, uh, you know, applied in that context? So that started me off in a in a in a separate but connected line of research, and, and they both came together in this in this new book. 
So I want to define terms a little bit because the, the full title of the book is uh, the problems of genocide, permanent security, and the language of transgression. I want to start with that term, uh, genocide, because I think how maybe a, a lot of people will be familiar with that term, right? But they oh. may not understand it within uh, an academic or international law uh, sort of context. So how is it really defined as a term, the, the concept of genocide? Right, so it is a legal concept as well, you know, as well as sociological, historical, and so forth. But it is, in a way, first and foremost, a legal concept, and it was designed that way. The 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 person who invented this term was this Polish Jewish lawyer called uh, Raphael Lemkin, who during the Second World War wrote a book called Access Rule and Occupied Europe. So that Axis powers, of course, Nazi Germany and its allies, and their their occupation of Europe. And the reason he he uses the term occupation in there is he's invoking the Hague Convention uh, of 1899 and 1907, which were international treaties uh, designed to regulate how uh, conquering powers governed occupied territory during the peace negotiations. Uh, so there were certain regulations uh, and rules about what you could not do to the occupied population and to the resources and so forth. They, they are, for example, partly those that uh, apply to the you know, Israeli occupation of the West Bank, for example. That's, a, that's what's called a belligerent occupation, which are meant to be temporary. In that case, not so temporary. In any event, the, the purpose of inventing this concept for Lemkin was to augment the Hague Convention uh, because it was inadequate for, to deal with what the Nazis were up to. You know, their occupation and that of their, their allies was so radical in many obvious ways that it, it, it required innovations in international law. And he wanted to add genocide as a really, really radical technique of occupation, which involved the destruction of nations to the Hague Convention. Now, it didn't work out that way. What happened is that soon after his book was published in, uh, well, at the time his book was published in late 1944, uh, the allies were designing the, uh, Nuremberg trials in the in the so-called well in the London Charter, which governed the Nuremberg trials, and the three key crimes there, international crimes, were uh, a crime of aggressive warfare, crimes against peace. That was the main one. Then there was crimes against humanity and war crimes. And uh, war crimes was a what could be traced back to the Hague Regulations, uh, whereas. Crimes Against Humanity was not somewhat of an innovation. There, there had, that hadn't been an international crime, although the rhetoric of Crimes Against Humanity had circulated around for, during the First World War. And Crimes Against Peace was, was a real innovation. So genocide was not one of them. It was included as an example of a war crime in sort of in the footnotes. But in that sense, genocide failed uh, as to break through an international law. But because the, in the Nuremberg trials, but because the trials were so disappointing for many people, because it restricted the application of crimes against humanity to you know, wartime uh, incidents and therefore excluded, say, the Nazi persecution of German Jews, which were, who were German citizens, obviously, uh, during peacetime, that there was a move afoot in the General Assembly of the uh, United Nations after the Nuremberg trials in late 1946 uh, to have a new convention to fill this gap, to plug this gap. 
And that's where the Genocide Convention was formulated in 1947-48 in a series of extended negotiations in the UN. And so you have a convention signed in late 1948, which codifies what genocide is. It's much narrower in law than what Lemkin intended in his book, and which we can talk about. Uh, and that convention has been extraordinarily stable. That is, its definition has been imported into other international uh, ad hoc tribunals, for example, the one for Rwanda, the other one for the former Yugoslavia, and then imported into the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which you know, now governs many many international uh, criminal proceedings or, you know, is the seat of it. So it, it's, it's quite a specific and, and rather narrow legal concept uh, or, le you know, legal uh, measure, uh, which sits alongside war crimes and crimes against humanity as the, the three common indictments against, you know, war criminals and so forth. You said it was uh, narrower in definition than Lemkin's uh, sort of, way of looking at it. How is that? So in, in this book, Access Will Occupied Europe, there's one chapter called Chapter 9 on genocide. And rather than the whole book being about genocide, this is one chapter. And the, the chapter lays out in a very broad idea of what uh, genocide can include. It includes, for him, what today would be called persecution, which is actually, a, if it's racially motivated, is a crime against humanity. Uh, if you look in the in the statutes of the International Criminal Court under crimes against humanity, one of them will be apartheid. Another one is uh, persecution. And there are others like transferring populations and so forth. And of course, mass killing and deportations. So uh, he had a very distinct and broad definition of what it meant to destroy a nation. It could mean, for example, to give you instances of uh, that he included in his book, in Bulgaria, which was uh, in, sorry, in occupied Greece, the Bulgarian authorities who were pro-Nazi, not allowing local artisans to register as artisans so that they couldn't, they couldn't work and that would not be able to reproduce Greek society uh, and you know, effectively destroy their economy or uh, preventing the use of languages, you know, local languages in schools, you know, this kind of a forced assimilation. And so forth. So, you know, which would today would not be, which was not considered part of genocide. You know, closing down libraries was actually one of the points of contention in these debates in the United Nations in 47 and 48 about what's in and what's not in the genocide convention. And the, the delegates of the United Nations decided a majority, although there was a, a vocal minority, that, you know, what we call cultural genocide would be excluded. You know, and Lemkin had included that in his early definition. So that was farmed off and put into different parts of international law. I mean, there's no, there's no legal category of cultural genocide, but you know, destroying heritage became part of a convention on heritage in the early 1950s, for example. And the idea of you know, persecuting people, but not murdering them and not deporting them, but persecuting them became then part of crimes against humanity, but it got taken out of genocide. And genocide, for all intents and purposes, became much more aligned to what people thought the Holocaust was, which was, you know, mass murder or mass mortality. For example, you know, one of the articles in the, or one of the clauses in Article 2A, so Article 2 of the Genocide Convention is 
putting people in conditions calculated to, you know, lead to mass mortality, like in camps. You know, it's not it's not lining them up with a machine gun. It's not putting them in content. It's not putting them in gas chambers, but putting them in, condi in conditions where over time there'll be, you know, mass mortality through starvation or famine and, and or disease, you know. But the bottom line is, is that there's got to be physical destruction. And that that's what genocide ended up becoming in international law and all the cultural and other things got stripped away. After the, the period of World War II, what's the sort of trajectory of the term genocide and its usage? Because it, it, it's used infrequently at times, and then it, it sort of gets more frequent in use at other times. Sure, yeah. Well, it does become, in, in fact, immediately a, uh, a term to accuse others with during decolonization and, and the conflicts of partition after the, you know, during these negotiations. So uh, India and Pakistan start accusing each other of genocide during partition, which is in the second half of what well, is during 1947, which is when these debates are taking place. Right. And then and then. Uh, you know, Jewish groups are saying genocide is taking place against Jewish minorities in North Africa and in Pakistan and so forth at the same time. So, you know, while the, the UN is actually negotiating the definition of genocide, various actors are using this term already. Then it becomes a, uh, a football to kick around in the Cold War. So exile Baltic uh, leaders, so from the Baltic states, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, who were exiled into the West after the Soviet annexation of those states, uh, accused the Soviets of genocide for you know, deporting their elites, uh, killing anyone who may have been a partisan or a right-wing partisan uh, or a nationalist partisan, I should say. Uh, on the other side, you get uh, communist-oriented groups accusing the Americans of genocide for you know, the way they treated Native Americans in their history, and for the way uh, America was treating African-Americans and Jim Crow and so forth. So it became a, a political football during the, the Cold War. I mean, during the Vietnam War as well, critics of the American campaign in Vietnam accused it of genocide. Uh, and then, uh, then it comes up in the 1970s with Cambodia, where people were really unsure actually what was going on inside Cambodia for a while. But uh, so there was from the, from the left some denialism. But I think uh, people quickly saw that uh, when they realized what was going on, that the, this was um, you know, a terrible experiment and maybe genocide was the right word. So uh, you know, these things were constantly in flux and there was no agreed, although there was an agreed legal meaning, there were no, there were no trials uh, at the time. The Cold War prevented uh, any, anyone organizing a trial. It's only after the Cold War uh, but not a coincidence in the in the early mid '90s that you get these international ad hoc, so that is one-off tribunals for Rwanda and uh, the former Yugoslavia, right? And then eventually an international criminal court. But there was no international criminal court even in discussion in during the Cold War, because you know no one no one wants to have a uh, an international organization be able to you know, judge, judge what your state's doing. I mean, America is still not signed up to it. And it's not, I mean, do it. How many members of the Security Council have signed up to the ICC? I don't, I'm sure China and Russia haven't. Uh, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they haven't. Um, so you can see what I'm driving at.
And I, I think it's become more, it, it, I think it's gotten a lot more political usage uh, since the, the 2000s. And I, I was wondering if you could talk about that. I think it's really invoked a lot by uh, certain foreign policy figures uh, like Samantha Power. I don't know if you could comment on that at all. Well, you know, accusations of genocide are very useful if you want to engage in humanitarian intervention, you know, especially in its military mode, right? So, uh, you know, genocide analogies, even if you don't use the genocide word, but genocidal analogies uh, can be used to mobilize a domestic constituency. So Samantha Power was using those kind of analogies to talk about the Syrian state uh, in its bombings of various cities like Aleppo and so forth a few years ago when she was the UN ambassador to the UN, the US ambassador to the UN. And uh, certainly she's a proponent of accusations of genocide where she thinks it's uh, uh, appropriate. Uh, but she's also a believer in, in US power to, uh, to prevent or punish perpetrators. Now that came out of her experience in Yugoslavia and she wrote this book in the early 2000s. I mean, it would have been written in the 90s, but came out in the early you know, 2001 or so on you know, America's acts of omission. You know, it's condemning America for not having intervened in serial genocides, you know, from the Armenian genocide onwards, right? This is the so, book that she wrote called, uh, I think it was The, the problem, problem From, from Hell. Hell. Yeah. The Problem From Hell. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that book was a big hit in the genocide studies community in the U.S., uh, in a sense, became their Bible because they were cheerleaders on the whole for, for American foreign policy intervention to prevent genocide. Uh, that was not uh, an interpretation of things that I agreed with or, or others who were uh, not based in the US at the time. Uh, and we, we tried to make genocide studies a little less partisan and activist like that and study it as sort of as a scientific problem or an academic problem. I mean, people are entitled to engage in advocacy and activism, you know, outside their role as academics. But I thought as academics, you need to sort of take a step back and just see how these things play out. And, you know, my observation is that, you know, most great powers have dirty hands and uh, allow their client states to engage in you know, all kinds of nefarious uh, uh, acts. And then they protect their own states uh, rather than they, they, they criticize the, nefarious acts of their geopolitical rivals. So, I mean, that doesn't mean that crimes aren't taking place, right? The question is, you know, what labels you affix and what's the intention of affixing it? I was going to say that I think there's some overlap between maybe some of your thinking and the thinking of someone like, say, Samuel Moyne. Yeah, I mean, Sam and I went to graduate school together. I mean, we've known each other for nearly uh, 30 years. And, uh, and uh, his latest book on uh, Humane and, and, and my book have, I think, quite a few points of contact. Yeah, it's not an accident. I mean, the book appears in a series that he edits, by the way. He edits a series at Cambridge University Press on human rights history, and that's where the book appears. So, oh. so yeah. I, I guess this leads us into, you know, the, the, the ultimate um, title of the book, The Problems of Genocide. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a... It's, it's almost shocking to read that at, at first, right? Like, what does he mean by the, the problem uh, or the problems of genocide? Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you could explain how you sort of see there being problems with this sort of concept today. 
Sure, happy to. So the the book, you know, starts with a sentence that you know the uh, obviously mass murder and so forth of people is a problem. I mean that goes without saying, right? But the book is not is not stating the bleeding obvious in that respect. It's saying that the concept of genocide is a problem because it distorts the way we categorize civilian destruction. So the destruction of civilians more generally, whether it be in famines, you know, humanly organized famines through blockades um, or mass bombing, uh, which was much more prevalent earlier in the you know, middle of last century, um, or now in drone strikes where it's more pinpricky, but accumulates over time. Now, these are, these are cases that are not considered genocide and nor are they. Right? But uh, so one of the problems of genocide is that it fixates just on ethnic, racial, and religious groups. So only certain categories of civilians are covered by the genocide concept, and hence the term genos, right? But not other, not other types of civilians. I, I was going to uh, ask real quickly about that. Does that come up in uh, discussions about, say, um, the Holocaust? Because I think there's sometimes been debate about the, the amount of uh, socialists and communists that were also... Right killed yeah sure so for example they're not victims of genocide according to an international law and to the concept right they're victims of maybe crimes against humanity or war crimes i mean let's not forget that at the end of 1941 okay which is sort of a few months into the uh, german invasion of the soviet union they, they having invaded um, poland two years before already in 1939 but they then but they go further east in 1930 in mid 1941 that although mass murder, mass shootings of Jews have started, the largest number of casualties, not civilian casualties, but just casualties by Christmas, 1941, Soviet POWs, you know, who are, I mean, millions of them are dying, uh, who are, you know, left to rot in, you know, makeshift, makeshift POW camps and so forth, and they die in that winter. I mean, if the, the war had ended in early 1942, the largest number of victims would have been Soviet POWs, right? I mean, they're not civilians, obviously, but uh, it was clearly uh, a breach of international law because, you know, you can't treat POWs like that. Now, so, you know, the, the, the total number of people killed in the Second World War, I mean, I, I don't recall the figure at the top of my head, but it's maybe 65 million or so, right? Uh, I mean, of them, possibly, you know, 20 million or so civilians, uh, possibly a lot more. I can't remember those statistics from the top of my head, right? Uh, but that's, you know, those killed by Germans are broken down into various categories uh, because the, the modality and the motivation of killing was very different at times. But so, you know, we talk about about 6 million Jews, probably between 5 and 6 million. And uh, then there are Roma, sometimes known as gypsies, uh, then there are, you know, the political prisoners, you've got the political opposition, you mentioned communists and so forth. Now, you can extrapolate that more generally into uh, civilian destruction uh, that is outside the, the context of the Second World War. And what I, what I saw, and this is then reflected in the cover of my book, which is a piece of art from the Yemen uh, war, civil war that's going on right now, uh, victims of a Saudi airstrike in 2015, is that these kind of victims aren't remembered. They're not, they're not accorded the same kind of status as victims of genocide. So that's one of the problems. Of, that's a second problem of genocide. You know, the first problem is that it fixates on or concentrates just on 
ethnic, racial, or religious victims, right? The second problem is that there's a hierarchy in international criminal law and in our remembrance culture with genocide at the top is the crime of crimes. It's not a term I invented. Lemkin uses this term. And that means those that are in other categories beneath the crime of crimes are just not seen. If I, I can could, tell you and ask me a question. Yeah, yeah if I could. Uh, in a way, what you're saying is that the way that we use this concept of genocide, it very literally uh, ends up structuring the way we think about what constitutes actions that shock the conscience of mankind. Correct. It's exactly right, um, Joe. It's exactly right. And uh, your use of the term shocking the conscience of mankind leads me to the second sub part of the subtitle, which is the, the language of transgression. You know, this sounds so very fancy and, and obscure, very academic. It's just a, a term uh, that I invented to indicate the threshold which we establish in our culture about that which shocks us and that which doesn't shock us. Uh, that which we, we, you know, shocks us to our core, we think something must be done, this is intolerable. Uh, or if it's beneath that threshold, you think you just shrug your shoulders and, you know, that's one of those things. And that does go on. So, for example, although there's uh, temporary outrage, say, against misguided surgical strikes by American drones, we can think of the case in the retaliatory drone strike after the bombing at Kabul airport, for example, which killed 10 people, I mean, six or seven children, completely the wrong people, right? I mean, in fact, an aid worker is working for the Americans, right? And then, and then we found out, thanks to the good work of the New York Times, that hundreds of civilians were killed in at least one airstrike in, in Iraq, I think it was, a few weeks later. It's all coming out now. And, and the more we learn, the more, the more civilian casualties there are in these so-called surgical strikes. Now, there is, there is outrage at the time, but it quickly fades and the new cycle moves on to something else because they're, they're collateral victims, accidental victims of military logic. Uh, where, uh, and that's distinct from a genocidal logic, you know, where the, the intention is to kill a people as a group as such, you know, just because they are that identity, right? And what I'm arguing in the book is not only are the, the, the distinction between these two logics uh, much less uh, emphatic than people think, but that to prioritise as more outrageous the genocidal logic over the collateral civilian casualties of the military logic is to discount all those civilians that are killed that way and to normalize it. And when you're engaged in a permanent war on terror, which is what the global war on terror has ostensibly become, right? It's been going for 20 years and it's still going, despite what Biden says, that the drones are flying around and uh, they're still killing lots of people uh, who are not involved and in, you know, who aren't combatants. Uh, then you're basically countenancing the permanent killing of enemy, or not even enemies, as foreign civilians uh, in order to ostensibly keep this country and Australia, its allies, safe. And what I'm getting at in this book is that this should be shocking us. Why doesn't this shock us? Why it doesn't shock us, I'm arguing, is that we've set up a hierarchy in international criminal law which also reflects our, our emotions and our affects. Like when, when we talk of shock, that's an emotional reaction. 
it's a mixture between cognitive and emotional reaction, right? And we've been, in a sense, conditioned to react to certain forms of human suffering in one way and other forms of human suffering, in both cases, civilians, right? Not combatants. And in another way. And I'm, I'm, trying to comp I'm trying to write a history. Well, I have written a history of how we came to that because I think this is a problem. And the idea of the book is, you know, once we understand that, A, this is a problem, and B, how we got here, then maybe we can rethink these categories in order to re, you know, reorder our emotional reactions about shocking and not shocking uh, to, the, to the mass violence against civilians that we see around us. Now, let me make clear to your listeners, you know, these are just some examples we're talking about. I'm not picking on the Americans here. Uh, that's just one version of uh, liberal permanent security. I mean, what, what the, the Chinese are up to within their own borders and the Myanmar military with the Rohingya is, is outrageous and also needs to be called out. Uh, but that's maybe part of another section of our conversation. So I, I want to get more into that term. Why do you specifically use the term permanent security and then maybe get into a distinction you make between liberal permanent security and illiberal permanent security? Sure, sure, sure. Happy to. So as you know, that's the first part of the subtitle. You know, it's permanent security in the language of transgression. Permanent security is, I am arguing, the actual motivation that that is beneath all these all these different crimes like crimes against humanity, war crimes, uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide, and, and also campaigns like the global war on terror. You know? uh, it's a distinction between regular security and an excessive form of security, which tries to prevent future threats. That's why the term permanence comes in. Let me give you an example as a scenario, right? So there were some separatists among the Uyghurs in Xinjiang in China. We know that, right? As there were among the Rohingya population in Rakhine State in Myanmar, but not many, not many. They could have easily been dealt with forensically in the sense of just picking them out and putting them on trial for committing crimes against, you know, against the law. Instead, in both cases, the state... Uh, exceeds what would be a regular security measure to attack the entire population from which those separatists came so that there would be no separatism in the future. It's a future-oriented preventative measure. Now, in the, in the Myanmar case, they decided on expulsion into mainly into Bangladesh right, of the Rohingya. Right? In the Uyghur case, they, they, they've incarcerated most of the population in you know, these so-called re-education camps where, uh, according to witnesses, that uh, it's difficult to know exactly what's going on. But I think we have a good idea now from you know, cross-referencing various types of evidence that uh, they're trying to you know, reduce the uh, Uyghur birth rate. Uh, they're trying to uh, uh, eliminate their Muslim culture and other distinctive aspects of their culture in order to have them assimilate more to uh, the national culture and uh, therefore not be separatists. And they are you know, exploiting their labor and so forth. You know, there's a series of measures which some people say amount to an intention to destroy the group as such. And so various commentators are using the language of genocide. I think Human Rights Watch uses the language of crimes against humanity. But in either way, it's a very nasty situation. 
but it's totally unnecessary. Uh, it's they they could have they there could have been much milder methods to deal with a present threat. But this it's this paranoia about future threats, about anticipation, preemption, and prevention that leads states somewhat in a paranoid way to try to to try to snuff out future threats, which means what you do is you attack entire populations because the separatists come from those populations. So you securitize peoples as such. And that's where I think the criminality in here is. Now, it can manifest itself in various ways. One is, uh, you know, what we call genocide, other, you know, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing. But uh, in those are usually associated with what I call illiberal permanent security, you know, the totalitarian states, the Nazis and so forth, right? I mean, the, the A1 definition of, of genocide would be the Holocaust. In a sense, it's archetype, which is also one of the problems of genocide, because to be legible as genocide, things in people's mind need to be to look like the Holocaust, which is very difficult given its distinctive features, right? Uh, the, an alternative version of permanent security is uh, what I call liberal permanent security, uh, which differs from its illiberal mode. I know this all sounds very technical, but it's important to it's an important distinction. You know, whereas illiberal permanent security is cares about the nationality or ethnos, the the particular nation that it's meant to defend. Uh, illib uh, liberal permanent security wants to defend humanity as a whole and make the whole entire globe safe for humanity as it this is where my work intersects uh with sam minds so for example to make this concrete uh, i mean the british empire argued in the 19th century that its empire pax britannica uh, was good for humanity as a whole i mean other empires from europeans did, did to the french and so forth right so that all of humanity mankind as i would have said uh benefits from our rule and we, we therefore are licensed to engage in, you know, extending our empire and crushing colonial rebellions uh, and uprisings uh, in the name of humanity. But the goal, the end point is actually pacifying the entire globe. And that was taken on by, by American, the American political class during and after the Second World War. Uh, so uh, the, the security doctrine promulgated by the uh, Bush regime or administration in the early 2000s after 9-11 very much encapsulates that, that mode of uh, you know, making the world safe for democracy uh, and making the, safe, the world safe for farmers in Kansas means you have to have now uh, flying missiles around parts of you know, Pakistan and, and the Middle East uh, who are you know, killing people based on faulty intelligence. And the idea is that you're in either those missile strikes and those drones is that anyone who's a potential threat is targeted. Do you see the, 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 the level of permanence is that you snuff out potential threats. And in doing so, you always make mistakes and kill civilians. And that's where, you, that's where it becomes uh, liberal permanent security and illegitimate. The book is arguing that permanent security illegitimate. I mean, it kind of sounds nice and fuzzy. We all want to be safe and secure, right? But the, the idea of permanence is a utopian and an illusory goal because nothing can be permanent. I'm interested. When we talk about civilian destruction, I, I think of this concept of uh, the, the concept of total war, 
where the laws of war completely disregard it. Is there some overlap in a way with permanent security with regards to that? Yeah, that's definitely a, a potential there. I mean, what's fascinating to read, Joe, is the, are, the, are the military experts and commentators and intellectuals who in the first half of the 20th century who wrote about um, aerial bombing. And they started during the First World War and immediately after the First World War when you know, aerial bombing was very primitive. People were throwing bombs out of cockpits, right? But already then, you know, in biplanes, right, very, very primitive aircraft, um, but already then people could see the potential for terror, the terrorizing and destruction of civilian populations because the bomber always gets through, according, as one British prime minister puts it. You know, it's really hard to defend against aerial warfare. And you can't put up a Maginot line. You can't build a trench. Uh, and you can't shoot them out of the sky. And aerial war theorists became all observed the way the First World War was fought. And uh, they observed that the, the side that would win was not only the side that could put the most soldiers on the front, but that could supply them with weapons, food, and so forth. And in, in order to supply them with all those things, you needed uh, extensive factories, net, supply networks, transport, and so forth, as well as access to resources to make you know, gunpowder and so forth. So the civilian population, according to that theory of total war, and you know, they're not wrong, the civilian population become active participants in the war effort. And that's what total war means, right? Uh, and that was a, a real breakthrough in, in military thinking, although there'd been previous, uh, you know, there'd been previous talk about this, but because, you know, in the 18th century and into the, before Napoleon, in the 18th century, you know, there was a strict distinction between soldiers and, 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 and civilians, okay? And that's, you know, the spirit in which the laws of war were developed. You have this, what the... Uh, Red Cross, the International Committee of the Red Cross, who guards the Geneva Conventions or governs them, is what they call the principle of distinction. You know, you have civilians and you have combatants, and civilians are off limits. Sorry, guys. I mean, they there there are exceptions made for collateral damage and so forth, but you can't target civilians as such. Okay? That that's the basic rule, right? And that's what, in their mind, distinguished civilized from uncivilized warfare. You know, so they would say civilized warfare makes this distinction, whereas uncivilized warfare, so what savages do, quote unquote, you know, in Africa and so forth, they just kill everyone, right? Because they're barbarians or savages, right? Whereas we are, we don't kill women and children, you know. Uh, and that was a very colonial mindset in the 19th century. But you get into the early 20th century and they're starting to think, you know, uh, well, actually, the 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 women and children. Uh, at least the factory workers, and they all live together, so that's hard to distinguish when you bomb them. You know, they are, they are as important to the war effort as are the soldiers. And so the, the air war theorists start becoming fascinated with the idea of ending a war very quickly to prevent the sort of the, 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 the pitch battles and stagnation on the Western Front you got with the trench warfare where you just, you know, men were churned up in pointless charges against machine guns and so forth, right? To their view was it actually more humane to quickly end a war and to prevent a repetition of the First World War by just bombing an enemy capital city 
and they would surrender straight away, right? Although you would, you know, necessarily kill a lot of civilians, right? So there was an extensive discussion in the interwar period, so before the Second World War, about the efficacy and morality of all this. And you know, there was a draft convention on this uh, that was not ratified in 1923, uh, another Hague Convention. But the, the norms were, even though they weren't hard international law, that you shouldn't go bombing any enemy civilians. But in the end, they all did. The Germans started it in the, in the Spanish Civil War, you know, with, with Guernica, the famous painting by Picasso. Uh, and then they flattened Rotterdam in the Netherlands and, of course, Coventry and parts of London and so forth in the Battle of Britain. Uh, but their bombers were pretty small and modest compared to the ones, you know, the B-17s and 29s, the super fortresses and so forth, that the Americans then uh, developed the British Lancasters uh, uh, in which, uh, you know, German cities are flattened. And then, we, then of course, we have the, the case of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So, so air superiority and the bombing of uh, enemy uh, industrial infrastructure, but in effect also civilians, became integral to the Allied uh, war effort. Now, it's clearly not genocide, right? But killing lots of civilians uh, that way was, you know, what I call liberal permanent security. And then became the model after the Second World War when the Americans uh, um, killed about 2 million uh, North Korean civilians in the, in the Korean War in the early 1950s. And then, and then in, in similar ways, or then with other kinds of destructive capacities, in, in, the, in the Vietnam War, right? So, I mean, it's no accident that the Geneva Conventions don't refer to aerial warfare and to, and to, uh, and to nuclear weapons, at least, at least nuclear weapons. There's a new book about on all this by Boyd Van Dyke. You might want to interview him. Um, um, he's just written a book on the drafting of the Geneva Conventions in the late 1940s, where all this is thrashed out. I wanted to get into some specific cases that you delve into in the book. And uh, one that particularly fascinated me, uh, and I think you've covered it elsewhere as well, is the uh, Nigeria Biafra uh, war, the Nigerian civil war. Could you talk a little bit about that and why you sort of deal with it in the book? Sure. So uh, as many of your viewers will know, you know, Nigeria was... uh, uh, decolonized and handed over to the Nigerians in 1960 by the British, uh, but itself was somewhat artificial colonial construct in which the British pushed together two different parts, uh, you know, Muslim North and Hausa and Christian South and so forth. And it was somewhat unstable polity uh, that suffered a series of coups in 1966, uh, in which in a form of retribution, uh, Igbo people who are Christians, who, who are you know, originally from the from the south, but many lived in the north. Were, were killed in many massacres up in the north, and there was a, a large refugee stream into into the Igbo territory. And its its leaders decide to, in shock, to, uh, said this is genocide, and we're going to secede and and separate and create our own state of Biafra, which then leads to this civil war uh, about to prevent the secession. Uh, from 1967 until January or so, 1970. It's about three years. And, uh, you know, many international observers were there. There was an international campaign to uh, feed the starving children because the the federal military government trying to prevent the secession uh, affected a blockade of the Biafran territory and uh, people were gradually starving. 
And there are many Christian missionaries there, Irish and others, who popularized this, or you know, they 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 sounded the alarm bell on this. And there was an international campaign, you know, to fly in food and, and supplies and so forth. And during this period, the, the Biafran uh, military authorities said, we are victims of genocide. And many of the supporters, including this country, agreed with them. So this was discussed in the newspapers and in, and in Congress. And, the, and the, same, the same in the UK, which was, that, you know, which was backing the federal military government, selling them weapons and so forth. The Americans didn't take sides on this one. It wasn't really a Cold War question. It was very much you know, for the British as one of their former colonies. But the, you know, there was intense interest in it here. And, uh, you know, a lot of Holocaust or analogies were being made, you know, the, the, the Jews of Africa and so forth. There was always a slippage to, you know, does this look like the Holocaust? There was an international UN-sponsored uh, investigation, uh, I think it's in 1969, which, uh, which was not allowed into Biafra because the, the federal military government wouldn't let them in. And anyway, they said, no, it's not genocide. And then when the war ended, there, there was no, you know, final solution, killing everyone. They, 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 they just integrated the state, the province back into the country. Now, of course, there was lots of persecution. And so people said, you know, this wasn't genocide. What was all the fuss about? This is just one of those things, a famine. Yeah, you know, three million people died. And, uh, and then it was quickly forgotten in international relations and affairs. But you know, if you go back and look at the intense international discussion at the time, you know, genocide was at the forefront. And what I was interested in, besides the intrinsic fascination you know, of this terrible episode, uh, is, is the fact that it, it, it was forgotten from genocide studies. You know, it was never included in, in the canon of genocide studies. So in these, you know, in these, in these textbooks that were starting to be written in the 80s and the 90s when the field was founded, and in the university syllabi that the people produced. Uh, then and now, you know, you 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 would you would skip from the Second World War to the to the um, to the to the Cambodian genocide in 1975, and then you skip about another 20 years to Rwanda and Yugoslavia, right? And it would skip over also the case of East Pakistan in 1971, in, during which genocide is also alleged to create you know East Pakistan seceding from West Pakistan and becoming the modern state of Bangladesh, you know, which also. Uh, you know, uh, at least a million people were killed and some say three million. Uh, so there were these intense international discussions which decided, no, this is not genocide because it doesn't look like the Holocaust. And this is what I call the, one of the problems of genocide. Hang on, guys, millions of people got killed and it can't just be forgotten. You know, why isn't this kind of uh, uh, suffering, which may not resemble the Holocaust, but why does it not register us as enduringly shocking, it clearly shocked some people at the time, but it quickly fell out of uh, uh, out of memory. And, and thus, I was going to say, and thus, this is why you're advocating more for looking at things in terms of of permanent security. Exactly, Joe. That's exactly right. So if we shift our attention from you know attaching this label genocide or not genocide, and and those that are not genocide are quickly forgotten. We, we can think, uh, A, more about uh, the suffering of civilians more generally, but B, we can also think more critically about the circumstances that causes this suffering. Right? And that, that, then we have a much more, I think, intense suspicion of the way the international system works. So the book is meant to be deliberately subversive. 
uh, in the sense of problematizing the way international politics and as well as domestic politics uh, works. So before we close out, there's one more thing I wanted to cover. You had this essay uh, entitled The German Catechism, and I, I found that really interesting because sure. there's such a, a fascinating you know, field of study to be had when it comes to uh, the subject of uh, the Holocaust. And I'm not talking about crazy people debating whether it was real or not. I'm not talking about the yeah. Holocaust deniers. I'm Obviously talking about, yeah. you know, things like uh, Zygmunt Bauman's Modernity in the Holocaust or other books that sort of deal with uh, the Holocaust and its implications from different angles. And I, I really think people should uh, consider those things more. Um, and I was wondering, what what is the German catechism? Okay. So this was a somewhat uh, uh, pointed little blog I wrote in April last year, so 2021, and uh, intervening in, a, in an ongoing German debate about uh, you know, contextualizing the Holocaust in, in, in other ways. So uh, the context was that the Cameroonian philosopher Akhil Mbembe had been canceled effectively in German public culture the year before because he'd written uh, an article in which he said that there was apartheid, it was actually a preface to a book, I think, and, and also an, an essay in which, uh, among other things, that you know, uh, there's apartheid in the West Bank uh, perpetrated by the State of Israel, which is now being confirmed by many international human rights reports, like the most recent one, Amnesty International, but also Israeli ones. Uh, and he also said that the occupation was one of you know, the greatest scandals of our time. And he also had a theory about you know, logics of separation that linked what happened in South Africa to Nazi Germany. It was a very sort of high level abstraction. Now, I don't agree with some of that. I mean, he's not an historian in the end, but you know, he's clearly a brilliant guy and very influential and you know, worth listening to, right? But he was invited to a, a, a literary or an art festival in Germany and then various uh, politicians and so forth said, well, we can't have him because he's, they think he's an anti-Semite. And uh, the reason for the trigger there is that there's a, a, uh, a federal parliamentary resolution, not a law, a resolution, but it's treated in a law-like way, uh, condemning BDS, the Palestinian Boycott, Divestments and Sanctions Movement, for being anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic like the Nazis, they say that explicitly. And that sent a chill through the academic and cultural sector in Germany, which relies heavily on public funding, uh, because effectively you can't invite anyone anymore on, you know, using taxpayers' money uh, who, who says things like Akhila Mbembe, which effectively means anyone outside Europe. And so every six months, there's a new controversy in Germany about, you know, an academic conference or a religious festival, uh, sorry, a, 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 an art festival, where people are invited who uh, denounced as being pro-Palestinian. And, you know, I said, look, I'm not a proponent of BDS, but, you know, this is a very illiberal sort of council culture that you've developed there in Germany. And you're using the uniqueness of the Holocaust as a way, as a, as a trigger for that. Because the logic in German public culture is that uniqueness of the Holocaust means that Germany has a unique responsibility for the security of Israel, you know, right or wrong. And, uh, and that means we need to police, you know, the, the, the public culture for anyone who's critical of Israel. 
including Jews. Uh, I mean, we're not not critical of Israel's right to exist, but you know the the occupation and so forth, right? And uh, I'm observing all this and noting how. You know, I lived in Germany many years and so forth. Uh, you know, I know the country quite well, did my first book on Germany. Um, and I observed that progressive Jews in Germany and, and Israelis living in Germany who are critical of Israeli policies are being lectured to by non-Jewish Germans about the correct version of Holocaust memory and the correct policy for Palestine and so forth. And I thought, well, this is quite extraordinary. You know, how do Germans, non-Jewish Germans, arrogate to themselves the right to lecture descendants of the Holocaust about Jewish pluralism, about Holocaust memory, and so forth? And I wrote this article, which is you know easily available on my website, to call it out. And uh, you know, I didn't create a polemic. In a sense, I was intervening in a in an ongoing polemic to say, look, if we think about, I understand that the you know Germany needs to have a particular relationship to, to these issues. That's obvious, right? I mean, Germany cannot become Israel's major critic for, for obvious reasons, right? But they've certainly gone a long way in the other direction and just became a tool for Netanyahu's, Netanyahu's memory politics, um, which is condemning and clap, clacking, clamping down on Palestinian advocacy, uh, advocacy wherever they went. So I said, look, you know, I'm not going to get involved in the politics of this, but let's let's look at how this functions in German public culture. There are sort of five, four, five articles of faith, which I call the catechism somewhat provocatively. Uh, when anyone who violates those, you know, about the uniqueness of the Holocaust, German, you know, that anti-Semitism is very different to racism, that uh, Germany should back Israel 100%, and there are a couple of others. Anyone who violates those is effectively booted out of the public sphere. And that seems to be empirically true. And then I said, look, each of these, each of these issues can be, can be rethought. So if you look at if you look at recent scholarship on the Holocaust, you know none of us use this concept of uniqueness. It's kind of a religious category. Uh, obviously, the Holocaust is distinct aspects, but you know if if you if you see it in the flow of history, it obviously has relationships to previous German genocides, like the one in Namibia, uh, so German Southwest Africa before the First World War which is in, you know, hasn't until now really been properly recognized because it doesn't fit the, you know, the, this sense of the uniqueness of the Holocaust. It can't be compared with anything. Now, of course, academics have been, including in Germany, have been engaging in this kind of uh, relational work for a long time. But in the public sphere, to, to, to draw these connections is to seem to be a heretic. And then you're, you're called a relativizer or denier of the Holocaust. So I was just calling out this somewhat hysterical public culture of discussion or non-discussion uh, and, um, and saying, look, the, 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 you, there's a fairly small group of people who are actually doing this. These are, uh, I'm not picking on, you know, I'm picking on here non-Jewish German politicians and journalists and some academics who are, you know, really, you can just sort of list them as like, 15 or 20 of them, but they dominate the major daily newspapers and magazines. And they just sort of polemicize relentlessly against anyone who says, like, things are a little more complicated. This, I mean, it effectively means that you've got a situation where not only do uh, non-Jewish Germans police the way that Jews think about these things, at least certain Jews, they also want to exclude brown people from Germany who don't subscribe to their view of the world which basically means that uh, you know, they're engaging in a kind of 
racism. I mean, they're using Holocaust memory for racist ends. And, you know, I found that and I still find that quite troubling. And, and that that led me into a, I, I guess you had a um, Habermas ended up intervening in this whole debate and, and you made a response to him. Could you explain what that was all about? Sure. So, I mean, that was, uh, uh, it was very good and, and important to see Jürgen Habermas, a famous philosopher who's very old now, was born in 1929, who, of course, instigated the first historian's dispute, as they call it, in the mid-1980s. It's good to see him uh, say something about what some people are now calling the second historian's dispute, uh, whereas the first one was about comparing uh, Soviet and Nazi crimes. This one's about colonial and, and Nazi crimes. Okay. Now, he addressed this to me in a, in a philosophical magazine, just a short one-page article, and it you know, mentions my name at the top. And he says, look, uh, Germany has changed. I mean, he's right on these things. Germany has changed. It's, it's, it's much more diverse ethnically with its migration patterns and so forth. And the, you know, German memory can't be frozen, is the term he used, and it has to adapt and uh, integrate the, the, the stories of suffering of migrants. Now, he doesn't mention Muslims here, but because the, the gorilla in the room are Palestinians who are now in Germany, right? He won't get into that. But in any event, this was a positive sign. But, but he said, migrants also need to take on board, you know, what I call the catechism, that the Holocaust is distinct and that uh, the, logic of, the logic of annihilation in the Holocaust is distinct from the logic of exploitation that you get in, in, in colonial cases. So in a way, he, he, he gave something, but also took something away. Uh, but on the whole, I thought this was as far as he probably can go. But I responded in a, in a newspaper article in Germany last, uh, last September or so, where I you know, praised him for this. But I also said, you, know, you need to take it a lot further. And, and, and I challenged him on the, this distinction he made between the, the Nazis genocidal logic and the, and the logic of the, the you know, genocides that take place in colonial contexts. I say that they're actually all related. It's, it's what's called permanent security. And, uh, and that we really need to talk about the Muslim and the Jewish questions in much more complex ways than, than he was doing in, in that, of course, a very short article. And if he had more space, it would have been good. But, you know, there's, there's only so much you can expect of someone who's, who's so old and the fact that he's keeping up and he's writing important big books is impressive at all. You know. So the last thing I wanted to mention in regards to all of this was, um, it's interesting to me, I, I don't think I realized till I was in college, uh, university, that there's all of this, you know, really dark, but fascinating, and I would say important literature around uh, the Holocaust and its history and its meaning you know, from the from the Goldhagen debates to some of the authors I mentioned, I, I was influenced in my university years by by Zygmunt Bauman, as I mentioned before. Oh, you mentioned that. Yeah. And uh, I was going to say, do you think there's a value in these discussions about the Holocaust that maybe uh, lay people are missing? Well, definitely. I mean, the Holocaust is, you know, rightly shocking the conscience of mankind. I mean, this is the largest child murder in history, probably. Uh, you know, I mean, you have to think about it. The people who are perpetrating this uh, were European Christians, and this hasn't been. Uh, I wonder if there's been sufficient uh, reflection in Europe uh, and in this country, in the U.S., that this is a Christian-perpetrated genocide. Uh, there should be much more critical reflection about uh, how this could have taken place and the resentments that led to it. 
I certainly am a proponent of Holocaust memory. And I, I mean, some people have said, Moses is saying we need less Holocaust and more colonial genocide. No, no, that's not what I'm arguing. They need to be thought together. I support that, you know, young Germans, you know, high school and so forth do be taken to concentration camps uh, to see what went on there. The question is what lessons they learn. Do they relate this to the history of racism in Germany against blacks and Muslims, or do they, do they separate it? It's make, it makes all the difference about the lessons that they learn when they get there. I mean, there's a, there's a big issue of racism in Germany, as there, are, there is in other parts of Europe, you know, against blacks and Muslims and Jews. And, you know, I'm a proponent of thinking these things together. It doesn't mean that the racisms are all the same. They're not. They're, you know, groups are, are racialized in different ways. But they are all species of racism, and there are many points of contact. So this, these histories can, properly taught can be used to impart, you know, challenging and difficult knowledge. You know, Baumann, who I had the pleasure of meeting once a few years ago. And oh, really? Nice, oh. Yeah. I've even got a photo of us having dinner. He wasn't very happy about it, I think, but uh, be shortly before he passed away. Uh, you know, people like Baumann, however you may agree or disagree, uh, were important stimulants to thinking about the Holocaust beyond the nation state frame, you know, thinking in terms of modernity, you know, high levels of abstraction and so forth. So, uh, you know, it, it's, a central, it's a central object of analysis for any adequate theory of modernity. And uh, I, I was also just reminded, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I know I said last question, but um, okay. I just wanted to ask briefly about, we mentioned at the beginning what the indigenous of Australia uh, have gone through. And I was wondering if you could tie that into all of what we've been talking about with regards to permanent security, with regards to genocide, because I have a lot of uh, friends from Australia, including people from indigenous backgrounds. And I think their story has been under-discussed as putting it mildly. Well, certainly outside Australia. I mean, it's, it's become, you know, it's the central point of historical justice, uh, whereas in the US, it's the history of slavery and lesser Native Americans. In Australia, it is you know, the indigenous issue front and center. Now, that said, uh, most Australians would probably resist the proposition that indigenous people have been uh, objects of genocide uh, or subject to genocide. You know, my first book was actually on this topic. It was called Genocide and Settler Society, uh, Frontier Violence and Stolen Indigenous Children in Australian History. And that was in, you know, 18 years ago in 2004. So early in my career, I was a big proponent of expanding the genocide concept. It's called conceptual stretching uh, in political science and, and, and attributing it or rather applying it rather to, to indigenous cases like Australia. And, you know, I was even writing something around about this in the Australian press in 2017, when certain uh, colonial monuments were being, you know, graffitied with no pride and genocide and so forth by indigenous activists. And there was an outcry among conservatives, oh, they're tearing down our history. And I said, you know, it's a genocidal history if you look closely. Uh, so it's an important rhetorical weapon for Indigenous people, uh, I think, and, and continue to think. And it is international law, and we can't wish it away uh, just because I propose a new concept called permanent security. That said, when you look at the, at the way that, you know, various episodes of mass violence or violence against Indigenous people played out in the frontier in the 19th century, and then later, once the frontier was closed and then you had this uh, indigenous population under state control, 
uh, what you did with those children, you know, putting them into schools and a bit like the residential schools in this country. I do think that the, the, the concept of security uh, is very useful. I mean, a lot of people on the frontier were very scared, a lot of the settlers, and uh, thought that, uh, as well as racist, but they were also frightened that they were on their own out there without an army. In that sense, you didn't have the cavalry coming like you did in this case. You know, it was the military that carried out many of the worst massacres in Australia, in, in the US. In Australia, it was settlers in posses, right? Uh, and not necessarily uh, trips. So in Queensland, you had a native mounted police that did that under, under government authorization. Anyway, these are little sort of a lot of mini genocides, I think. And they all added up, though, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, devastated the, the, the demography of Indigenous people in the 19th century. So the, you know, there was an intense debate about genocide in the late 90s and the early 2000s in Australia, but it faded away and moved into different directions. I mean, now the biggest issue for Indigenous leaders is constitutional recognition in, 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 in and in a, in a role in government. That's where the debate is at the moment. And I think if we have a change of government uh, later this year with a, a Labor government, or maybe with the Greens, then you'll get some action there. Well, I want to thank you again, Dirk Moses, for coming on Parallax Views. Anything you want to say in closing? I'm assuming people will know how to get the book. Everyone knows how to use the internet sure. today, but anything you want sure, to say? Sure. No, that's fine. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you and, you know, really enjoyed your questions. I hope this is uh, interesting for your listeners. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with A. Dirk Moses, author of uh, The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security and the Language of Transgression. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. At the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, and the Mayor Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider joining those listeners in supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews at the $10 tier above. There's also a $1 and a $5 tier if you'd prefer to support me that way patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is your monthly donations that help to keep this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, 
uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.